So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to, for you. I'll read it again since it's just one verse. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. One of the things that we do, hopefully, as preachers is we model to people how to do Bible study. That is book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Sometimes we preach long sections. In our Hebrew series, I started somewhere in Hebrews chapter 9 and finished in somewhere in Hebrews chapter 10, all in one single sermon. The opposite is true here. We have a single verse, which is 24 words in English and 18 words in the original language. And almost every word invites investigation. Scripture is a very great treasure. I remember as a child, as a boy, a young, whatever, a youth, uh, the pastor of my Baptist church did a Romans series, Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, he actually finished up Romans 8 and he said, you know, we're skipping Romans 9 to 11. <laughs> and uh, because he, he said it would be too contentious. Um, but we don't, we don't skip verses and sometimes we don't skip chapters. And sometimes we, we take more time with a single verse. I want us to consider this single verse under three headings. Rejoice in the Lord, no trouble for me and safe for you. So, I mean, the only other thing to talk about would be finally, but don't worry, I'm going to get that too. So first, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul begins chapter 3, verse 1 by saying, finally, finally. What should we make of this remark, given that there are two chapters to go? Is Paul bringing his letter to a close, but then he hears some news from Philippi? And he decides that he's going to have to begin again in earnest to answer this report. Or is he using the word finally to introduce another, maybe the end or close to the end, major section? I think Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 answers this question for us. There Paul uses the word finally, but he clearly has plenty of words left over before he finishes the letter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, etc. And as you well know, when I say the word finally, I don't have just one sentence left to go, right? I've got a little bit more to add. So finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, brothers here include sisters. He's speaking to the whole congregation. After all, in chapter four, when he says, Finally, uh, chapter four, verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He's not neglecting the women. So it's brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians, as Paul has made very clear to us, is a letter of rejoicing. Paul rejoices in the advance of the gospel, Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Even though some preach Christ out of rivalry, selfish ambition, he rejoices in the face of death. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, because he will either be delivered from prison in this life or he will be completely and ultimately delivered through death by taking the hand of the Lord Jesus. In Philippians 2, he says he'll rejoice even if he dies, and he calls upon the Philippians to rejoice as well. Again, in Philippians 2, we looked at it this morning, 2 verse 28, he tells he calls on the Philippians to rejoice at the arrival of Epaphroditus. And so, yet again, he calls them to rejoice in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. And he really, as we'll see if the Lord tarries, he really lets loose on the rejoicing in Philippians chapter 4. So, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. So here's the one thing I want you to think about in the midst of all this rejoicing in the first sentence. It's a command. It's in the imperative. Rejoice. It's not a question. Hey, Philippians, do you want to rejoice? It's not a statement. You know, I've noticed you're rejoicing. On the contrary, it is a command. Rejoice. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus likewise offers a command to rejoice in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus doesn't ask a question here. Are you rejoicing when people persecute you? He's not making a statement. You know, I've really noticed that you rejoice when people utter bad things about you falsely. No, Jesus is issuing a command. Rejoice. Do this. You must rejoice. And Paul, here in a Roman prison, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Notice it's rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in your circumstances, rejoice in your good health, rejoice in the success of your career, rejoice in the Lord. We just heard a moment ago that one of our missionaries who's having the city where he lived bombed, he's had to take his wife to safety He's ferrying across an international border in a time of great peril. And what does Matt Lee say about Doug Shepard? Well, he seems really happy. He's rejoicing in the Lord. This has always been the consistent Christian position. The American Mission Hospital in Bahrain is the oldest hospital in the country and perhaps the oldest in the Persian Gulf. It's a celebrated hospital now. His Majesty, the King Hamad bin Isa al-Khalifa, hosts a charity golf tournament to raise funds for the hospital. But the beginning of the American Mission Hospital were quite modest. Samuel Zwimmer and his wife Amy, an Australian nurse, opened a one-room clinic in their home in the late 1890s. They lived above and the dispensary was below. And realizing they needed more medical expertise, they called for American medical missionaries who came. 
And by 1903, the hospital was formally opened. Humble beginnings. But today, the hospital system is actually the largest healthcare provider in the country, and it enjoys royal patronage. The hospital began in 1903, but Samuel and Amy did not meet with uninterrupted success. On the contrary, the following year, 1904, they buried their two daughters. Katharina was seven and Ruth was four. Worthy is the lamb to receive riches is what they had written over the tombstones of their two daughters. Hardship, suffering, toil, and loss. How did Zwimmer die? Was he a bitter man? Was he captivated by his sorrows? Not at all. 50 years later, he wrote, reflecting on his missionary endeavors, the sheer joy of it all comes back. And I would gladly do it all over again to bring the gospel to Western Arabia. So brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I'm not asking a question. Do you want to rejoice? I'm not making a statement. Oh, I see that you're rejoicing. No, I'm telling you what the Bible teaches. Rejoice. That's the command. Rejoice in the Lord. When things go well for you, rejoice in the Lord. God is bestowing his heavenly favor upon you. When things go badly, rejoice in the Lord. God will deliver you soon, either in this life or the life of the world to come. When you are mistreated, rejoice in the Lord. God is a just judge and he defends his own. When you mistreat others, rejoice in the Lord because God is gracious and merciful in all things, in all times, in all places, in the good times and in the bad times. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says, and then he adds, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Paul says to write the same things. To write what same things? Is he referring to his consistent theme of rejoicing? Or is he speaking of the disputes among Christians, which he mentions in chapter one and will return to in this chapter? Is he saying, is he emphasizing the writing part that he's writing things now? Or is he perhaps referring to previous letters that were somehow lost? Let's take these four things in turn. Previous letters. We have no evidence that Paul wrote previous letters to the Philippians. He could, but we don't know. So I think proposing that he did so is, is speculation, and that's generally something to be avoided. Well, what about writing? Maybe the emphasis is to write these same things. I've been telling them to you, or I told them to you in Philippi years ago, but now I'm writing them to you. I appreciate one commentator who did emphasize the importance of writing. After all, we tend to think of writing as a straightforward task, but it was obviously an arduous one, especially as one aged. And in a time when there were no disposable pens, cheap paper, or eyeglasses. I always enjoy, my vision's terrible even with glasses, so I always enjoy 
thinking about Paul writing in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand, which may possibly be an indication that he liked things in big fonts. So Paul may be emphasizing the task of writing rather than speaking. If he's sending the letter by the hand of Epaphroditus, which we talked about this morning, he could have given just verbal instructions to Epaphroditus, a trusted man, but instead he committed, he took the trouble to write his instructions. I think that's a helpful insight, but we can still ask, what are the same things? What does he mean by that? And here I think we're helped by Paul's language. Notice that he says same things in the plural. So I think that we can take rejoicing and also the disputes together. So Paul's consistent refrain, as we see in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, is to rejoice in all circumstances of life. And part of the circumstances of life are disputes and disagreements with those who say that they are Christians. So here, the same things could function in a way similar to Paul in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I'll write it again, rejoice. But I also think it fits well with the disputes. So if you connect chapter 3, verse 1 with what follows, I mean, look at verse 2. Exciting stuff. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. When there are evildoers and troublemakers, evildoers in chapter 3, troublemakers in chapter 1, remember they're, they're, call, they're, they're acting to cause uh, trouble for me and my chains. I think that what Paul is saying here is it's no trouble for me to write to you to rejoice in the face of your troubles because I continually remind myself to rejoice in the face of my own troubles. Yes, there are people who are disturbing you in Philippi. That's what he's about to talk about in chapter three. And I'm telling you to rejoice in the face of those people. But remember, chapter one, I'm having to constantly remind myself to rejoice in the Lord in the face of my own hardships and the face of people who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, who know they're stirring up trouble for me in prison. So it's pretty thin gruel, isn't it, whenever anybody encourages you to have joy in your trouble, when, they have, when they're totally joyless. You've had these, this happen to you, perhaps, where Mr. Grumpo says that you need to have joy in the Lord, and you're like, are, really? Are you kidding me? But that's not Paul. Paul says it's no trouble for him. He takes his own medicine. He's rejoicing, even though he's in prison and even though people are causing problems for him. You know, when uh, there was this husband and wife uh, team that was interviewed and they had this uh, strange uh, bio, their, their professions were such that they could assist the United States government in an interesting way. They uh, taught um, interrogate, interrogators, U.S. interrogators, how to question terrorists. And one of the crucial things that they learned was that the interrogator needed to make sure that the terrorist 
thought that the terrorist was the alpha male, that the terrorist was the really tough guy. And that, of course, was difficult to do because all the American interrogators that they worked with sure thought that they were alpha males and that they were the tough guys. But actually, by dropping their machismo, they could get the, the terrorists to swagger and to boast and start talking, which is exactly what they wanted him to do. So what about you? When you face difficulties and challenges, you may think that you need to man up. But Jesus says you need to child down. Coining my own expression. Child down is becoming like children. Like children in Matthew chapter 18. If you want to enjoy the kingdom of heaven, you must become like these children. Children are full of trust. Children are also full of joy, real mirth. But guess what? Children are also strong and resilient. They are full of energy. They're ready for the task ahead. So drop your cool kid swagger and rejoice. You don't have to be the dark and mysterious one. You can be the happy one. Happy kids are full of energy. It's no trouble to a happy child to play. So let's rejoice. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And so we should encourage each other to rejoice and encourage ourselves. And I think we should be like the Apostle Paul. This is a strange, because it's so particular, point of application. But I think that we should be like the Apostle Paul. And we should write each other little notes. Cards, texts, emails, handwritten notes. It's a lost art, but it's worth preserving. Paul says it's no trouble to write these things. But, but we live in such a, an easy and selfish age that to write a note means that I have to find paper and a pen and I have to locate that strange and mysterious unicorn called a stamp. And then I have to put it on an envelope and I have to know what your address is. Oh, so troublesome. But it's no trouble. It's no trouble. So even as we rejoice, we should find it no trouble to encourage each other to rejoice as well. Joy is infectious, and some people need the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, only the Lord can give anyone true joy. But being around people who are full of the joy of the Lord make Jesus attractive. There was a woman this morning after church, either before or after church, who told me that she was converted because she heard someone speak about the Lord. And she said, I want to love the Lord the way that person loves the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble to me. And finally, he says, well, there, there's that word again. See, finally, now you know that I'm not gonna, there's not just one sentence left in the sermon, but fi finally, uh, to write the same things to you 
is safe for you, is safe for you. When Paul says to write the same things as safe for you, I think we must keep in mind his self-conscious awareness that he is instructing the church as an apostle, giving them words of life. We have almost half of the New Testament because Paul was willing to write things to people. And writing things down is a safeguard against forgetting them. I once heard a preacher, and it wasn't Paul. I would tell you if it was Paul. But I once, I once heard a preacher who said that when he was a young man, he needed to write things down. And that as he aged, he needed to remember where he put the sheet of paper that he has his little to-do list on. And, and then the, the real punchline is, he said, now I wander around my house, I pick up a sheet of paper and I go, what's that for? <laughs> right, so there's a, but it's good to, to write things down so we remember them. But I think, that, I think that Paul writes these particular words because he emphasizes the real power of joy, the real strength that we get in rejoicing. Rejoicing brings its own strength. A merry heart does good like medicine. Proverbs 17, 22. I think Paul is saying it's no trouble for him to write to the Philippians that they should rejoice in the Lord in the face of the troubles because calling the Philippians to rejoice is actually protection for them. It's actually a safeguard against those who would pull them away from the joy of having salvation and faith through Christ, through Christ alone, by faith alone. As one commentator remarks, spiritual joy is the best safety against error. Spiritual joy is the best safety against error. That's especially good against the error of Philippians chapter 3, of those who want to heap additional burdens on God's people as though they have to perform some kind of work in order to gain God's favor. Rejoicing in the Lord is a reminder that because of Jesus, I already have his favor. I already know his good pleasure. There is perhaps nothing more consistent with our theological forebearers than to sing, as we will in a moment, joy to the world in the season for some people of Lent. While some people are wearing sackcloth and ashes, rejoice in the Lord. It's safe. It's okay. You can let yourself backslide into happiness. Even, even if you're fasting, remember, even when you fast, the Lord Jesus says, you fast before your heavenly father. You don't fast before the world. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Rejoice in the Lord. It is safe for you. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And why? Why should we rejoice 
even in the face of real sorrow, real distress, real disagreement with fellow believers, because he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. When we face conflict with other people, it's distressing. It doesn't matter what the conflict is. Even we, when we're confident that we are in the right, or at least we think we're confident that we're in the right, it's discouraging. When we fear we're in the wrong, it's worrying. And when we actually know that we are the ones who've done wrong, it's just awful. And in those instances, Satan wants us to despair. Satan wants to destroy the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters. He wants to steal our joy. While rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard against ruined relationships and theological error. There is a thankful gladness to rejoicing that reframes the way we see our circumstances. When we face setbacks, we should wonder, as my wife often does, and it's to her credit, what is the Lord going to do here? What's the Lord doing in this situation? What will he do? Difficulty should bring us to the edge of our seats as we wait in eager expectation to see what the Lord will do. And we can hope for an outcome more glorious than we can possibly imagine. You know, one of the great comforts of watching a John Wayne movie is that except in a few instances, except in a few instances, which I won't mention for spoiler alert purposes, right? You just know he's going to make it out alive, right? Even if while galloping on a horse, holding the reins with his teeth and shooting people with both hands at a remarkable distance, you know he's going to be okay. So the more perilous the situation, the more extreme the danger, the more excited you become at the prospect of that turning point when the, what looked like was going to be a total catastrophe actually achieved a great victory. Friends, do you have more confidence that John Wayne will get out of his tight situation than the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, repent and rejoice in the Lord. Jesus is the greatest of all times. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And it is no trouble to me to, me, to tell you to rejoice in the Lord, because calling you to rejoice is a safeguard against all the snares of Satan, that he would have you look at life as though it's one hard slog instead of being what it is, a, an easy and happy walk into glory. That is not to minimize our circumstances, but our light and momentary troubles, as Paul writes at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We look at what is unseen rather than what is seen. 
For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of your righteousness and wonders of your love. We pray that we would be happy warriors, that we would be joyful children, and we pray that we would rejoice in the Lord always. We will say it again, rejoice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.